Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Dr. Lisa Littman. Dr. Littman is a physician scientist whose research is focused on gender dysphoria, the experiences of people who desist or re-identify after identifying as transgender, and people who transition after gender transition. Dr. Littman is known for coining the phrase rapid onset gender dysphoria to describe a phenomenon that has been observed by clinicians and parents and has been acknowledged by several detransitioners. Lisa Littman, welcome to Savage Minds. I'm very excited about your research, not only what it meant at the time back in 2018 and the various debates that emerged, but what it means today. So I'd like to step back for the listeners who are not so familiar with your research, if you could give us a backdrop to what brought you to doing the research on rapid onset gender dysphoria. I'm a physician and I'm trained in obstetrics and gynecology and public health and preventive medicine. And actually this is something that I observed in my, in my own community. So maybe around 2014 or so, I noticed that a very high number of teenagers in my community were announcing a transgender identification, often on social media. And I remember when the first two came out, I thought, that's great. I'm so glad that they're comfortable expressing this. You know, and after those two, there was a third, a fourth, a fifth. And these were numbers that were really remarkably much higher than the expected um, numbers that one would see in a town. So you know, it, it sort of got my attention and I thought, gee, I wonder, I wonder what's going on here. So I reviewed the literature around gender dysphoria and I read up and refreshed my memory about early onset gender dysphoria, late onset gender dysphoria. And I realized that what I was seeing was very different than what had been demonstrated in the research literature. Then I went online to see whether anyone else was reporting on these friendship clusters, you know, friends where numerous kids announce a transgender identification around a, a similar time point. And there wasn't much, but eventually I found a few websites where parents were writing about their experiences with their kids. They wrote about kids, mostly daughters actually, who didn't really have much gender nonconformity or any gender issues throughout their childhood, nothing observable. And often they had maybe some mental health issues, anxiety, things like that. And they wrote that, you know, their kids made it through puberty without issue. But then in these social groups, their, their friend groups, there was a lot of discussion around gender and sexuality. And then numerous kids would announce a transgender identification, you know, which is surprising to have friendship groups do this. And these parents described that, you know, when these kids made these announcements, it wasn't first, it didn't make much sense given the child's entire life history. But also it wasn't a situation where it seemed like the kid was finding their true self and flourishing. Because what happened is these kids would announce this identification and they would get worse. They would be more sullen, more hostile. So it wasn't that sort of picture. And these parents also described they would go, you know, and take their kids to see a therapist or a psychologist or a psychiatrist. And what was surprising is that the clinicians that they saw would see their children for a very short amount of time and say, yep, what they should do is go ahead with transition, you know, medications and things like that. 
And the parents would raise these issues like, you know, this is very new. And my daughter's the fifth kid in her group to announce this and, you know, these other mental health issues and these other symptoms. And they would report that the clinicians, you know, weren't interested in the the background, in the context, in the child's psychological history about any traumas. Everything was considered irrelevant. There was one answer and the answer was social transition medical transition. And if the parents questioned whether this is the right thing for their child, and these were not parents I've come to know have generally been very tolerant parents and who are very supportive of gender non-conforming or gender stereotype non-conforming activities, interests, clothing, and very supportive of lesbian, gay, bisexual people, and even trans people would say, you know, if this is what my child truly is, and what will help them in the long term, I would support it. But their sense and their understanding of their child raised these concerns that this didn't seem like the right diagnosis or treatment for their child. And so raising this from a point of, is this going to help my child or harm my child? They were generally shut down and called transphobic. And I found that pretty shocking that if this could be verified, that that kind of behavior in a clinician is just very unprofessional and just outside the scope of what you would expect. So that was one aspect of what I was doing in terms of sort of learning about this process. Then another thing I did was I wanted to see the social media environment that these kids were communicating in, because part of what parents were writing about was that in addition to these friend groups, they wrote that their kids were spending an awful lot of time on social media. And so this was, you know, right now, I think as a society, we're all pretty immersed in social media, but it wasn't always this way. It was really more of a gradual increase, you know, so they were describing this and I wanted to see what kind of social media messages and what kind of environment there was. So I did a deep dive into Tumblr and that was, that was quite the education. So what I found on Tumblr was there are a lot of teenagers giving other teenagers very bad advice. You know, there was a lot of validating unhealthy behaviors and thought processes. For example, you might find somebody on Tumblr saying, I wasn't doing my homework. I started failing my classes and my parents took away my phone because I was spending too much time on social media. That's child abuse, right? And then immediately there would be like hundreds of kids affirming, oh, that is absolutely child abuse. Your parents know nothing. They're terrible. So that was, that was interesting. There's like another area, you know, another really narrative in social media that People should be able to diagnose themselves and nobody needs doctors or psychologists or psychiatrists. And I found that there was kids with mental illness or depression, and they were being told that the only people who understand you would be other people who are depressed and you shouldn't listen to parents or doctors that, you know, if your parent says to you, you should go see a doctor, you should go to sleep at night and wake up in the morning and shower and and sort of do these sort of life taking care of yourself things while they don't understand they're being ableist. And so basically they were being told to how to shut down conversations that might actually lead them to getting better and, and feeling better. And, you know, so, so I found that kind of environment. And then 
looking at what the environment was about gender identity and transgender identification, that was really interesting. So there were a lot of people who are questioning just very, lots of different kinds of symptoms like, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm kind of feeling, I've always felt a little uncomfortable. Does that mean I'm trans or I never really fit in with my friend, with other people. Does that mean I'm trans or I kind of want to grow my hair long, you know? So all of these very sort of vague, common, very common feelings and emotions for teenagers. And so they were most often told, absolutely, that means you're transgender. That's how it was for me. And if you're even questioning whether or not you're transgender, then you probably are transgender. You know, another message was, if you don't transition right away, you'll always regret it. And then there was a lot of praise for people who were identifying as transgender and a lot of mocking of people who aren't. And so there was this weird in-group, out-group behavior that looked a lot like what you see around eating disorders in that there are these social groups. And if you're on the inside, we love you and you're great and you're beautiful. And on the outside, it's like, oh, you're not thin enough. You're not, everybody else is the enemy. And so there's this animosity towards parents. And, and then there were instructions on what you should say to your parents to get, to convince them to give you, you know, take you to a doctor for hormones and what you should say to the doctor and what you shouldn't say. Long story short, (laughs) um, or a long story kind of long, that was, you know, the social media environment. And so at that point, I saw with my own eyes in my own community, I researched the, the literature, I looked at the social media environment and I did what any responsible scientist would do in my position. I thought I need to study this. I need to start asking questions. What is going on here? And I didn't have a a chip on my shoulder or or some sort of motivation to say, this is 100% always the case here or never the case here. Transition always helps. Transition never helps. I really went into this with the perspective of this is unusual. This does not fit what the scientific literature has said up until this point. How can I explore what is going on? What questions should I ask? So that was, that was how I came to study this, this whole area of gender dysphoria. And through the process and through meeting people and through meeting detransitioners, that also was formative to me in terms of areas that I needed to explore because there were a lot of unknowns. And unfortunately, I didn't see many other people asking these questions or exploring this. We know from literature, especially the groundbreaking research from the Australian New Zealand Journal of Psychiatry around 2014-ish, I think, but it was a study that showed the links between anorexia nervosa and social contagion. And what, and it questioned basically what the clinical implications would be. So then I'm thinking, well, okay, we know that anorexia was diagnosed. There was a name given, write-ups and research done about this disorder. The response to dealing clinically with this disorder was never, well, you are fat, stop eating. There has been this explosion of cases, some of which you've referred to seeing how this manifested outside of the given and historical 
modality for understanding gender dysphoria. So the trans advocate might say to you, well, the explosion is because people are becoming more tolerant and so kids are feeling more expressive of their gender identity. So when you were approaching your research, how did you work, theoretically speaking, and also in terms of how you proceeded in your research methodology, when on the one hand, we have this square, let's call it, of what is codified today as gender dysphoria, the real gender dysphoria, and this other square, which you basically had a question mark on, what is this? What did your research say to that kind of contestation? Okay, well, actually, there are a couple of things that you said there I wanted to, to, to go back to. You know, you mentioned sort of the trans community, and I, and I do want to, to, to state that this is not a monolithic, everybody thinks the same way community or communities. There are a lot of transgender people who support the work I'm doing and, you know, the questions I'm asking, and there are definitely transgender people who are very opposed to the work I'm doing. And then, you know, and then there are activists who are very vocal and activists don't necessarily reflect everybody of that community. So I just wanted to kind of put that out there so that we're not really painting with a broad brush. This is not trans people say this, trans people say that. There is a lot of diversity amongst trans people, like there is diversity amongst any group, any group of people. There is this sort of a, a perspective and a camp within some clinical settings where, you know, the approach is affirming the gender identity statement of the person and very pro-medical transition, just very enthusiastic about medical transition. And within that camp, there are a lot of assertions and assertions of certainty, but without evidence. So you mentioned, for example, sort of this, some people might say that this explosion of dramatic increase of teenagers um, identifying as transgender, expressing gender dysphoria, that it is only because of the decreased stigma. And it's important to, to step back and to think when you see such dramatic changes in the demographics of a population, you really don't want to jump on your first explanation and say there absolutely can't be any other explanations. So is part of this because we're more tolerant and we're more um, supportive and there's more information? I would say yes, that is part of it, but that's not where you end the discussion. And so this is often asserted as the only reason. And maybe you might think that if there was like a 5% increase, but when you're seeing like in the UK, a 4,000% increase in, in female teens identifying, you really need to be scientific about it and say, there may be many factors contributing to this. So when I propose that perhaps there is peer influence, uh, maybe there is some contributing factor around the messages teenagers are getting from, from other teenagers, from other people in their lives. That's something to be explored. And so I found it somewhat surprising, you know, that there were folks just immediately saying, oh, that can't be it. You know, it is, it must be only this, never this. And it's, it's important to understand that that's an assertion and it's an assertion without proof. And so we still need to ask these questions. 
I'm coming from the perspective, we need to know everything about this process. We need to know about the developmental paths. We need to know about the different trajectories. And it seems to me that there are some people who maybe only wanna hear and only wanna learn about the information that supports the approach they like best. If it supports going forward with the informed consent model, if it supports the uh, gender identity affirming model, then cool, that's awesome. But if there are questions that maybe shed some doubt or maybe suggest that that might not be the best approach for every single person who walks in the door with gender dysphoria, oh, we don't want to hear it. It can't, it absolutely can't be that. You know, and then there's this little, there's, there's something that's always puzzled me about this, that there's sort of this exceptionalism that if it touches upon gender identity, then none of the rules of being a human being apply. So what I mean by that is we know what toddlers are capable of understanding and knowing about themselves in the world. And you may not take a two-year-old saying X, Y, or Z as literal, but folks who are really very promoting of the affirmative medical transition pathway will be, oh, if it's gender, they know. It is, they're like these little wise wizards that they can be wrong about the Easter bunny and everything else. But if it's gender, they are absolutely 100% spot on. They know the whole world. We know teenagers. Teenagers, part of the development is exploring different identities, seeing where they fit in the world. And teenagers can be wrong about things. I mean, I was a teenager. I know teenagers, like they're not 100% always correct. And so some folks who are sort of very much promoting the affirmative approach and the informed consent approach are like, okay, yeah, teenagers do this, except when it's about gender, because why would they do that about gender? And it's so this sort of taking it out of context of everything we know about human beings to kind of place the gender identity on a pedestal and confirm that this is the way that we should be treating it. So I'm gonna back up and talk a little bit about the methodology of how I set out to do my paper on gender dysphoria. So since nobody had really described this in the literature, the appropriate first step was a descriptive study. You don't start off the bat with a randomized controlled trial. When, when you start to see a phenomenon or something unusual, often the first step in research is doing a descriptive study. And that is finding cases that might be eligible for your study and describing them. And this is sort of a, this is a tool that allows additional research to further explore the phenomenon or the condition. You know, it's pretty clear that the first study would be a, a descriptive study. And so I used methods that had been used for, for decades in research, internet recruitment, snowball sampling, parent report, things of that nature. And so what I, what I would like to point out is that these methods had been used for a long time. I did not invent any new methods for this study. And somehow they've never caused any outrage <laughs> until my study. And in fact, there are many of the research studies that 
are supportive of the gender identity affirmation medical transition and pathway that use the same methods. So just to kind of put it all on the table, there was nothing unusual happening by creating a survey, doing targeted recruited, recruitment, reaching out to, to communities where you might find cases and analyzing the research. So this was really pretty um, I'm going to say mundane and boring. Like, I mean, it wasn't boring to me because I find it fascinating, but it's kind of like, you know, there's really no scandal you know, about, about the choice of methodologies. So yeah, so that's how I went about starting the study. So what were the results of your study? And to sort of tiptoe back to my earlier question, because it's something that I constantly scratch my head over, in your study, you're looking at rapid onset gender dysphoria, what you came to coin as that. But to what degree did the results of your study show rapid onset gender dysphoria? But also, what does this mean for then the true gender dysphoric individual in the sense of this is a bracket that is being safeguarded by many of the trans identified people who feel like they, some of them have spoken to me, they fear that the current lobbying is going to get that knocked off as a, a medical reality. When you talk about rapid onset gender dysphoria in your research, there's always the risk then, not because of what you've done per se, but the interpretations of your work might be used to say, well, this calls into question to what degree we can say that gender should be at all medically treated, if you follow my drift. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to start with what the results showed and then what it, what it means. So this was a parent report study, and that's not unusual. Lots of, lots of studies collect information about children and teenagers from, from their parents. And so I asked a variety of questions about uh, mental health diagnoses, friend group interactions, social environment, outcomes, things like that. And so it's important to, to point out that this is a hypothesis generating study. So this is not a study that says, this is how it is. This is a study that says, here's a description that we have from 200 50 plus participants describing their children. And here are the issues that it raises. And here are the hypotheses. And so the hypotheses that have been generated from this study are that this may be a new pathway, a new development, as it seems to be different than what was previously written, and that there may be psychosocial contributors to gender dysphoria. And what I mean by that is that it's possible, hypothetically, that an experience of trauma, psychiatric disorder, mental health issues, experiencing homophobia and difficulty accepting oneself as lesbian, gay, bisexual, or social influence may contribute to someone feeling gender dysphoric. And these are the hypotheses. So that's the sort of what the findings were. And actually the conclusion is this needs to be studied more. So what does that mean? The hypotheses are not that this is how it works with all people. And in fact, I was really clear to say that this research does not imply that this is the experience of everybody who is gender dysphoric. 
this doesn't mean that nobody benefits from transition because there are clearly some people who benefit from transition. What is raised is that sometimes, or it's possible, or in some people who experience gender dysphoria, it's possible that this may have emerged from a variety of, of issues. So that's about what came out of that study. So it's really important not to broad brush this and apply it to everybody. I've said that on more than one occasion, both in this study and in a follow-up. Like this does not imply that it's universal. This is raising the hypotheses and we need to do more research. I saw that when I read your study, it was clear. Yet people who read your study were not always so happy. (laughs) What was some of the response to your study? Yeah, well, so it's interesting because I do think some of the pushback about the study might be people who haven't read the study. <laughs> so, you know, there are a couple of things, you know, where people criticize certain, certain aspects that were actually in the paper. One of them, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you know, there really wasn't a lot that was comical or humorous about sort of the experience of the response to the paper, but I do have to raise one, one thing that was, So there was somebody criticizing how it was a parent report. Well, that should have been in the title. And so the funny thing is that it actually was in the title. Um, It was just after the colon. So it does, it means that at least one person was very uh, confident to criticize the paper after not actually making it to the end of the title. So that was interesting. There was a variety of responses after, after the paper came out. I have to say that it was strong, polarized. It was, it was very mixed because I did hear from a lot of people. I did get a lot of support and this was by email. So there were clinicians reaching out to me saying, thank you for studying this. I'm seeing this in my patient population. I don't know what to do. There were, of course, parents who were very grateful. There were some trans people who were grateful for the work. And there were detransitioners who reached out to me as well and academics. This is sort of the quieter support, but publicly there was a lot of outrage and support. But I think in retrospect, a lot of the pushback wasn't really because of the methodology, but it was because the research findings really challenged some of the assertions that support continued use of the gender identity affirming model of care and the informed consent model. And so I think the response was defending that model rather than many of the things that people said. So as I had mentioned before, many of the methods that were used in my study are used in studies that support the gender identity affirming model and informed consent. And that's why you did the follow-up piece on the use of methodologies in Littman 2018. Yes, exactly. So that was a response to to a criticism in which, of course, if you're very motivated to find everything that's not perfect about a study, you can, you can make a list, you know, but I really wanted to point out that by doing a side-by-side comparison, because in science, you don't change the rules because you like a study's finding or you don't like it. Like you, you need to use the same objective standards whether your preferred beliefs are being challenged or supported. And so 
I really feel very strongly about that. And, you know, I always try to check myself because as human beings, we definitely have this tendency to, we want to be right. So we're more likely to listen to things that support our point of view. And we're angry about sort of challenges to our point of view. But I really check myself to make sure I'm applying the rules the same way. And so that came out of a personal experience, actually, that I have a relative who's a conservative and I'm a liberal. And we had a lot of political, let's say, heated discussions. <laughs> and we were one of the good things to come out of those discussions is that we both became very careful about making sure we were using the same rules no matter who was doing what. Because if you change the rules to be more lenient when, let's say, your side is doing something and more strict and more outraged when the other side does something, like you're not being reasonable and you're not being scientific, you're just being partisan. And so unfortunately, a lot of the arguments about my research looked like they were partisan arguments. I mean, so my research, the first research study is not perfect. No study is perfect. There are limitations and they're described as is the manner. But to have it, oh, this is the worst thing ever, or this is the best thing ever, that's not realistic. It's really for where it is at the early stage of exploring a phenomenon, it's a reasonable study and it's not different from other studies. And that's why I wrote sort of this side-by-side -side comparison to point out that to be reasonable and to be scientific, you need to use the same rules. And it was, it was interesting. I was at a panel discussion. One of the speakers described my paper as, gosh, what do they say? Methodologically atrocious. And during the same panel, I can't remember if it was the same speaker or one of the other speakers, they described this other paper as phenomenal. And I suspect that I may have been the only person in the room that understood that both of the papers had the same methodology. And so that was probably the most egregious <laughs> example of just kind of changing the rules based on whether you like the results or whether you don't like the results. That is a problem in, in I think, discourse today is that there's a lot of misrepresenting things that people don't like as terrible and things they do like as amazing. In this discourse, particularly, I've noticed that folks are using the terms debunked and myth incorrectly to mean I don't like the results. So, or I don't want this to be true. So a lot of sort of the desistance myth, there is not a myth about desistance. You know, there are 11 plus studies that document that children who are gender dysphoric are most likely to develop once they get through puberty, gender dysphoria is likely to resolve. And many of them grow up to be lesbian, gay, bisexual, non-transgender adults. Yeah, so desistance is not a myth. There are a lot of arguments, but, but again, as I mentioned, a lot of these arguments come from a sense of this would challenge continued use of the affirmative model because desistance being true would require some caution before jumping to a diagnosis and treating a child. It's well established through follow-up research that many gender dysphoric children and the majority of them will grow up to become comfortable with their biological sex. And many of them will be lesbian, gay, and bisexual. Um, and there's a real concern that jumping 
to treatment and blocking puberty may have the unintended consequence of derailing the development of children who would otherwise grow up to be gay, lesbian, bisexual adults who are not transgender. Well, that on top of the fact that back to what you said earlier about treating personality. Now, there are two things that come to mind and that came to mind when I read your study in 2018. We've seen a huge increase in recent years amongst girls being referred in the UK, in the US and Canada. We know about Kenneth Zucker's struggle to have his research acknowledged without him being defamed for it, because he also noted that the affirmation versus the watchful waiting approach yielded two different results. And we know that desistance is high. I believe his research showed 84% desistance mm-hmm. rates. Now, here's my question. When you're looking at this, and as much as you say that no research is perfect, etc., what I think of is this. Did it take 4,000% for us to start to notice this? What about when the incrementation was only 25% or 30%? What I'm asking effectively is, And back to what does it mean to say that someone is gender dysphoric as a medical condition versus the reality that you and I, and I have yet to meet one person that didn't struggle with various issues in adolescence. These can be issues of depression, body hatred, of not having friends, of weight issues, of all sorts of issues. A part of me feels that gender dysphoria is mislabeled in a sense of, yes, people feel at odds with what they feel to be quote unquote their gender. But Lisa, I'm, I can tell you that I don't have a gender. I never had a gender. Yes, I fought against gender because for me, especially as a woman or then as a girl, gender evidenced itself, it reared its ugly head. When I was told you have to do this or you can't do that, because dot, 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 you're a girl, right? Now, we're seeing youth and even young adults who are part of what I have called social contagion. And aside from the uses of your research, that there might be indicative from yours and other research, a need to reevaluate what gender dysphoria is in terms of the social, Mm. because gender is something that is very much a social construction. So if I want to identify differently and I say I have a gender, that's because someone is layering on top of me expectations of a gender because of my biological sex. Mm. So what does this mean when your research showed that rapid onset gender dysphoria is a reality But what can be said then if the research hasn't been done prior to 2012, as you noted, that maybe when the cases were augmenting 25, 50%, even 100%, not 4,000%, might this have just been a slowly augmenting social process of, of kids who want to be like their friends, identifying as the opposite sex because there is social currency in this. And you've seen it, we've all seen it. Parents get to feel special. They get to say that their kids are special. Love is exchanged symbolically through medicine. So let me respond to a couple things because there are a lot of 
a lot of topics that you touched on. Um, so you mentioned that my research showed that ROGD is a reality. It actually didn't show that. It, it really, it raised the hypotheses. However, since the research clinicians have documented, have said that the research is consistent with patients that they're seeing. So, so that's support for the hypothesis. Additionally, detransitioners have stated, some detransitioners, that this is that what was written in my research is consistent with their own lived experience. And that's support for the hypothesis. So I just want to be clear about that. There's a lot going on and there's a lot going on socially. There's a lot of, there've been a lot of changes over the past 15 years in a lot of ways. I don't want to not mention that the kids, the teenagers who are going through this, it's not just a sort of this lighthearted, not real situation. I mean, they are experiencing pain, psychological pain. They're having a tough time for a variety of reasons. I think that it is incredibly hard to be a teenager today. There are a lot of very difficult issues to navigate. And so I don't doubt at all that what they're feeling is, is pain and dysphoria. But I think the difference is how people are expressing their pain and their distress. And so that is what I think is different um, now is that a lot of issues are now sort of being channeled into gender. Like it's viewed that, that the gender is the, is the big issue. So there's been some things that you and I and and other folks wouldn't describe as gender, gender identity is being lumped into this gender discussion. There are a lot of ways to be female and a lot of ways to be male. And people have differences in their interests, their behaviors, their aesthetics, what they like to wear, what their personality is. And those things don't have to be called gender. That can be called personality, moods, aesthetics, fashion, interests, activities. And those things, I know in the seventies, there was really a move to really break down those gender, these really regressive, restrictive gender roles that there are lots of ways to be male. Like you can be sensitive and like colorful things and be a scientist or be bookish or, or be very masculine. And as a, as a female, you could be a scientist. You don't have to wear makeup. You can fall in love with women. Like we really try to break down those, those stereotypes. And I do feel like we've come back and sort of created those stereotypes again in order to create this spectrum, you know, of where are you on this? And what does that mean in terms of gender? I do think we are contributing to people feeling a disconnect to kind of separating it from their biological sex. But your research showed that there are psychosocial issues that can contribute to what someone experiences and what is labeled, even mislabeled as gender dysphoria. What I'm trying to get at here is where is that wedge between what is quote unquote true gender dysphoria and rapid onset? And I ask that not as a cynical question, but I do interrogate myself the prescriptive measures for, and it is, you know, no one doubts that it's painful what these adolescents go through, but the prescriptive measures for dealing with someone's feeling of what they call their gender, quote unquote, and their bodies. And so 
I do question to what degree the social contagion model might be more useful in a way to clinicians to understanding gender than actually the old school methods of saying this person is gender dysphoric, we are going to treat this person with boom, 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 boom. Yeah, I, I think I see what you're saying. And so, so again, we need more research about, you know, different types of gender dysphoria. It's not just a one size fits all, like, you know, there's just one kind of gender dysphoria and one kind of treatment. And I think that's been sort of a shortcoming of the discussions that we're having. I mean, there are decades of research that showed that there are different kinds of gender dysphorias, like plural. So I can lay that out and describe where what I'm looking at fits into that. So for many, many years, we've, we've understood early onset gender dysphoria. And that is gender dysphoria that begins with a young child saying that they are the opposite sex, the feelings and the and their their conviction, you know, it starts early, it's before puberty. And for that type of gender dysphoria called early onset gender dysphoria, this can happen in natal females and natal males. So this is, we've seen this in boys and girls. And again, most children with gender dysphoria as they go through puberty, it will resolve, you know, unless you block their puberty. So this is what the historical data says. So early onset gender dysphoria, one type of gender dysphoria. Then there is a late onset gender dysphoria. And up until recently, this was only seen in males. And I'll say natal males by, you know, um, speaking to the sex. And historically, this was often older males too. It was not uncommon for middle-aged males to become gender dysphoric, transgender identified, and, and want to transition. And again, this is in the literature. People have studied this for decades. The male late onset gender dysphoria could have occurred, you know, as early as puberty. And then up until about 2012, there really was very little, if any, scientific literature documenting that late onset gender dysphoria could even occur in natal females. So that's what makes part of this very new, that there is a new presentation that has not been studied, all right? So, so those are some differences. And so the population that I'm interested are these teenagers and young adults. And what we're seeing is that it's predominantly female. So not, you know, not universally, that's where I'm studying. And there, there is documentation in the literature that <clears throat> there are some really important differences between early onset and late onset gender dysphoria. It was acknowledged, I think this was the APA task force report in 2012, uh, you know, and other places that adolescent onset or, you know, later onset, if we're talking about teenagers, is much more complicated than early onset. It's much, much more likely to have comorbidities, psychiatric issues. They suggest really exploring whether there's a trauma or a reason for this. So that's the difference. So my area comes together with sort of the adolescents and young adults who did not have early onset gender dysphoria. The diagnosis of early onset gender dysphoria, about what age are clinicians making such a diagnosis? I ask you because I'm sure you're aware of the clinical and developmental psychologist, Diane Ehrensaft, who makes the claim that if a child as young as even one year of age, pulls off her barrettes, 
then she's explaining to us, the parent, that she really is a boy. Yeah, I mean, I've heard that. And again, I think that's, again, um, attributing characteristics and knowledge to a child that a child does not have the capacity for. So, you know, at that age. So there's a saying that for somebody who has a new hammer, every problem starts to look like a nail. And I think that's apt because if you're thinking that everything, that gender is the underlying issue to everything, you may start to see things through a particular lens. I think that's, you know, something, something to be aware of because what's the, what's the underlying issue in this situation? So I do want to talk a little bit about the different approaches because you mentioned watchful waiting. There's developmentally informed approach, which is what Ken Zucker has used in, in Canada. That's his approach. Um, there's an exploratory approach and then there's the affirmative approach. So the watchful waiting approach is the Dutch approach in which they understood that puberty was very important in the developmental, uh, in the development of children so that they did not interfere in terms of medical intervention until at least there was some puberty because they understood that there was assistance. The developmentally informed approach also, you know, takes into account where the child is and sort of therapeutically helps the child reduce their gender distress. Um, what, even though watchful waiting and developmentally informed and also the exploratory approach have their differences, but the things that they have in common is that they are grounded in developmental psychology. They're grounded in cognitive development, what a child is and is not capable of. It is, they are grounded in the evidence about desistance, this understanding that, you know, the natural history and the trajectory often leads to um, becoming comfortable in one's natal sex. And they are grounded with the recognition that the psychosocial context matters. There could be a lot of things in a child's life that is contributing to their dysphoria and their distress. And it's not always a one size fits all approach. So if you hear Ken Zucker has described, you know, patients in which, you know, a young child, I think saw her mother um, abused or killed or something tragic and terrible. And felt that had she been a boy, she could have protected her mother. And that's where the, the child's feelings of wanting to be the opposite sex or believing they were the opposite sex came from. It could be a boy who was bullied for being too, I don't want to say too feminine, but for being feminine in his behavior. So there could be, a, so this, this importance of the psychosocial context is really part of the developmentally informed approach, watchful waiting, and the exploratory approach. What differentiates the affirmative approach from that is it is a strict departure from a lot of those things. It takes gender and really elevates that as the most important topic. And so there's been a separation from, from developmental 
psychology. And so what you describe as attributing a one-year-old with expressing gender, expressing what their beliefs are, that's sort of a departure from developmental psychology. The affirmative approach rejects the desistance literature. They have a lot of reasons why they don't think it applies to them and also have really separated themselves from the psychosocial context. And so I think that's probably one of the biggest shortcomings of the affirmative gender identity affirming approach, because again, there's like this assumption that if a child has a psychiatric or psychological issue, it's likely due to discrimination or, you know, the gender incongruence or something along those lines. And so again, that's an assertion and an assumption, but it's been taken to, to really exclude evaluation of the psychosocial context. So I think that's where some of the, how dare you ask these questions, <laughs> criticisms came at me because I want to know what's true and what's not. I want to know what's helpful and what's harmful because that's going to change what I support and what I don't support. And I don't put one approach, you know, as the center of everything and reject um, all information that might challenge it. So that separation from the affirmative, you know, the affirmative approach is so different from the developmentally informed approach, watchful waiting and the exploratory approach, which is much newer, which is really a, those approaches are really more of a whole person approach. And the, the affirmative model is really much more about gender superseding other things. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. That calls into question, of course, then how clinicians can approach this topic without falling prey to the, I'm sure you've heard this kind of logical fallacy. As ice cream sales increase, the rate of drowning also increases. And it's basically an argument or a proof of a correlation is not causation. If people go to the beach in the summer, so there will be more drownings, just as in the summer, people eat more ice cream. Are the two related? And this is something that I've thought about in terms of childhood gender dysphoria, because of the way in which boys and girls and even men and women identify as transgender, they are very distinct ideals at heart. Going back to some of what some of the feminists have said about this as well, the shame of girls growing up, developing breasts, on top of the fact that much research is showing that a lot of the girls who are declaring themselves to be transgender have autism. So there seems to be where girls are codified as being gender dysphoric, there are these other attributes that are going on, which has to do with puberty, development of the body. What girl wants to have menstruation? I mean, I have not met one. And all these things that are going on that are quite traumatizing. Plus, look at our culture and the way in which sexuality, women's and girls' bodies, and the physical is relayed through media, film, you name it, oh, video games. 
And then the alternative realities that video games and MUDs and so forth offer where one can escape the body. Because since the internet, and I have questioned if the internet is also not part of this issue of gender identity, people can, for the hours they play online, games with other people, they can inhabit another body. I like Second Life, for instance. It's a virtual reality platform. I haven't used it in a while, but I used to use it just to go flying because I sort of like the idea of flying. I'm just wondering why there seems to be this notion, like what you just said about the affirmative model is focusing on gender and the other one's not. We know from literature and recent studies that there are comorbidities for girls especially. How right. is it that we've arrived at this need to explain that comorbidities, I mean, comorbidities are not uncommon for many conditions. Girls who are anorexic, it's not that every single person presenting with a certain psychiatric or psychological issue is going to be the same as the other person presenting right. with that issue. Right. It's not gender dysphoria, evidencing the need for more nuanced discussions about the ways in which, as I said, boys and girls are experiencing gender dysphoria quite differently. And I would argue then, going back to some feminists who say a lot of gender discussions, including that of gender dysphoria within the medical community, are not addressing inherent sexism at root in the sense of why are boys feeling shame for wanting to play the violin or wear a pink dress or a pink shirt. You see what I'm saying? There's right. a real problem in my view that the medical community is not looking at the social enough in coming to terms with its treatment of these children specifically. I think there have been so many changes socially and how we interpret distress and a lot of things that have sort of led us to where we are here. So there are things we know about psychiatric comorbidities and gender dysphoria, and there's a lot that we don't know. We know that there is an association with individuals who are gender dysphoric or who identify as transgender with higher rates of psychiatric diagnoses. And we know that these things, that this association exists. What we don't know is we don't know if the experience of the gender dysphoria and experiences of discrimination and things like that cause the psychiatric disorders and outcomes. We don't know whether the psychiatric, whether there could be psychiatric disorders, outcomes that lead someone to be gender dysphoric. We don't know if there is a separate confounder, not yet identified, that contributes to psychiatric morbidities and gender dysphoria. And we don't know whether all of those things exist, but in different people and different, different extents. So it's really important that we have this discussion and know what's, what's, and be able to discuss what's going on. Unfortunately, there are people and discussions that are saying it is only this one thing, that it is only because of discrimination and the gender incongruence. And that's shutting down a really important information, uh, really important information that we don't know. We don't know yet what, the, what these relationships are. And it's really important that we find out because if we wanna help people, 
we need to know what's true and what's not true. So you brought up sexism and that's, I think that's really important topic and the shame of that people have about their bodies. And it's important not to overdiagnose these things. And we should be working as a society to help reduce the shame of having a body. Puberty is rough. Like let's, let's just normalize discussions that like puberty is rough and uncomfortable and embarrassing and all of these things. And instead of really making it worse by not talking about that, I think the elephant in the room for a lot of this is homophobia. I really think that there is a threat of homophobia running through a lot of this. And so in terms of same-sex attracted, especially, especially lesbians, somehow in sort of the new order of things, being lesbian is, is still seen as sort of the bottom of the totem pole. And there is a lot of animosity and hostility directed at lesbians. And there's still, there's still homophobia, you know, as sad and uncomfortable as that is to accept, there is still a lot of homophobia. And so I do think that's the heart of some of this for some people that this is something that I've heard from individuals who detransition. Many of them really have felt that not wanting to be gay or not being able to accept themselves as gay or lesbian really was part of why they were gender dysphoric and why they wanted to transition. And so when you speak to a lot of detransitioners, a lot of them are lesbian and had difficulty with the discrimination, difficulty accepting their bodies. Gender dysphoria is not uncommon. You know, if you speak to lesbian, gay, bisexual adults, uh, many of them have spoken about this and really have been very outspoken about the potential harm of taking the gender dysphoria and gender nonconformity that is a not uncommon part of the development uh, into a lesbian, gay, or bisexual adult and medicalizing that youth and the possibility of derailing them from their developmental track. So I think there's homophobia there, you know, sort of in that topic. Many of the clinicians from the Tavistock who left really raised the issue of families who would rather have a trans child than a gay child as part of something that was very problematic in what they were seeing. So I think that's that's a really important topic to talk about in terms of this. I mean, people have raised the issue whether over-medicalizing a child, whether that is akin to gay conversion therapy, because you have a subset of young people who, if allowed to develop, would otherwise be lesbian, gay, bisexual adults who are not transgender. And so there is potential to derail that by medicalizing these young people. And that's what some of the lesbian, gay, bisexual groups have come out to, to really talk about and to highlight that, that this is over-medicalizing these youth. I was thinking about this as philosophically speaking, I view a lot of what is considered transgender identity or, or even gender dysphoria as a larger problem of teleology in the sense of the question begets the answer. And I feel like the input into basic sexism has been elided by the medical and psychiatric and psychological communities. We're seeing a rise. Did it take 4,000 for us to really understand that rapid onset gender dysphoria amongst adolescents 
might be a possible cause of this, would it also not be logical to question any kind of rise? Because as you are aware, back in the 70s and 80s, people who were then called transsexual were very few and far between. I worry that with the kind of increase that we're seeing, it didn't have to be 4,000. It could have been 20% increase. That our society is taking on the mandate of many of my critiques of late capitalism head in the same direction where the customer is king. If the customer is king, what choice have doctors, even psychologists who've been told in the past decade and a half to start calling their patients clients, because that has been ongoing, especially in the States, that there is very little way that these clinicians, psychologists and psychiatrists especially, can push back on the models being presented to them. With late stage capitalism, there is a lot to account for where from the very beginning, this process of classifying someone as transgender or then transsexual went without any kind of social or anthropological studies. Something I think behooves us to do, both for the better good of these individuals and society, because I'm sure you're aware there's a culture war around this issue. And the culture war takes many forms. It's not just about girls in sports or safety in prisons, et cetera, et cetera. But it's also about the basic right, as many people maintain, for them to see another person notice that this is a man in a very interesting dress, but they can't say it, right? Mm -hmm. And there seems to be a push to have medicalization. And, you know, Michel Foucault wrote about this in, in Discipline and Punishment. There is a push for us to codify individuals through structures that are now being lobbied for and pushed and threatened even for, that we are now all obliged to take part in X person's therapy. No longer is it, okay, I'm gonna write up this prescription and you see this specialist and you start therapy twice a week. Now it's, we're going to get all of society to confirm who you are because your true self is this because you say it and because we have a guide here that says that whatever you say is correct. Do you see where I'm going with this? Mm, yeah. I do question how medicine, psychiatry, psychology has shifted so far towards a clientele model that this is having treacherous effects on larger society. Why should you know, anyone have to be a mirror to someone's, what they say, delusion in the sense of why is medicine invoking mass social responses and political as well? So there's a lot there. Um, so I think what I would like to, to focus on is the um, sort of the, the medical environment and really placing this in context with other things that have happened. Um, so there have been many examples in history where an intervention comes out and clinicians are very enthusiastic about it and it, the use becomes widespread. Um, and then information emerges that about complications and risks 
and the medical community needs to change what they're doing. When I was a resident, it was common practice, it was guidelines, it was taught to us that providing postmenopausal women with hormone therapy was what you did as preventive therapy. Like this was to protect them. Then my first, I think it was my first year in private practice, research came out that basically demonstrated that there were complications. And the medical community pretty quickly changed their prescription patterns. So it's not that they said, oh, hormone replacement therapy is never acceptable or never the right thing, but it was really reevaluating what the risks and benefits were to each patient and really fine tuning what the indications and contraindications were. And instead of treating it like a vitamin or a supplement, it was treated like a medication. And so pretty quickly after the research came out, you could, you know, it was demonstrated that the prescription patterns of OBGYNs changed to go with the science. Probably another, another example is the overuse of antibiotics. So, and that one has a couple of characteristics that are, are, are relevant to the discussion. So physicians were overusing antibiotics and what emerged was antibiotic resistant infections. And then this was acknowledged to be an issue. And there was a, a push that's been called antimicrobial stewardship to pull back on the prescription practices. And this was not as immediate or as easy as the postmenopausal hormone replacement therapy because patients were asking for antibiotics. This was a different situation in that patients as consumers often would come in expecting or asking for antibiotics. And so there was more drive, I think, to provide those antibiotics, especially as patient satisfaction was used as a measure. And so that example, it's been harder to rein in the overuse of antibiotics. And again, the goal is the right patient, the right time, the right dose. It's not to eliminate antibiotic use. It is not to overuse it. It is to find the right use for it. So then the next situation that I think serves as an example is the opioid epidemic. Opioids work great for short-term pain. And then there was this belief that there was almost no risk of causing opioid dependence. And over the course of time, people started to recognize that they were causing an iatrogenic opioid dependence and that, that this was a big problem. So again, this was another case where as new information developed and complications emerged, we had to rein things back. Um, and again, being a, you know, the whole consumer physician relationship does make this more challenging. But in the case of, you know, the providing um, cross-sex hormones and puberty blockers to, to young people, like to teenagers and, and youth, there is a difference that really makes me think that it's going to be a much lengthier process of fine-tuning what the risks, benefits, indications, contraindications are. And certain challenges are that are different from these past examples 
is when the research came out to show that there were, you know, risks of post-hormonal, post-menopausal hormone replacement therapy, the people doing the research weren't called phobic or anti-postmenopausal women. The people who were identifying an overuse of antibiotics weren't called phobic or saying, you know, you hate children who have fevers. So I do think sort of this cultural situation is going to make it much harder to make sure that these medications are used appropriately. And that as new information develops, it is taken with the amount of, of gravity that needs to be done. There are many people who've noted amongst the trans-affirmative parents, and there are many Facebook groups out there for this to include one run by Jazz Jennings' mother, that parents, aside from homophobia that has been noted amongst some cases of the parents, that there is a whole social manifestation happening here. Again, late-stage capitalism since the late 90s with the crash, more and more parents are working longer hours and more jobs. There's less time, quality time, certainly, to spend with their own children. And I've wondered if not medicine, not only this, we saw in the 90s as well with kids being put on Ritalin for simply being what many would say were normal kids, not hyperactive, kids are active. But it seems that with more and more parents, getting pats on their back, especially in these chat rooms for saying, it was hard for me to come out, but my child is, so it's not only their child who's coming out, it's the parent that's coming out. And Mm -hmm. so from the trans, you know, the transgender affirmative side, there's this narrative of being proud and brave and so forth, and finding one's true self. From the gender critical side, there are accusations that some of these parents are engaging in things like Munchausen by proxy. It's hard for me to understand why, not weighing in on either side here, but why there aren't more studies looking at the sociological implications of gender being medicalized. I've often wondered why there aren't more studies about a lot of these these topics and why studies weren't started sooner. But regarding parents and the culture and the decisions they make about their children. I really believe that parents are trying to do the best thing for their kids. They are trying to prevent harm and promote a positive outcome. And so you're going to get different actions based on what information a parent has received. And also about the child, like not every child is the same. So there, there are differences there as well. Some parents, either by being told by their clinicians or their social groups, believe that providing social transition, medical transition, is going to help their child and that delaying it will harm their child. And there are other parents also who believe that if their child is socially transitioned or given cross-sex hormones, puberty blockers, that that will harm their child and that it would help their child to provide other kinds of therapeutic support for, for what's going on in their lives. So I do think that the difference that what they have in common, even though they might look very different, is that they're, they're trying to help their kids. But what somebody thinks is going to help their kid 
and what somebody thinks is going to harm their kid is different. And I think that's what accounts for these different approaches. And I think it's really important not to demonize parents who either promote transition or who promote psychotherapeutic support for their child's distress. I'm thinking of this in terms of the way this discourse has become demonization on the one hand, those who are critical of the process of the mechanisms for transitioning children, and on the other side, the beatification of those who do. And I feel very strongly about this, that there's a danger about medicine of any sort, where the end result is media coverage that has exploded. One thing, and I know it's not your field, but definitely communicologists and media experts need to study. They should take your research and do a cross-case study of the augmentation of media reports on this. I can put money down that we're going to see a correlation. Rapid onset gender dysphoria didn't just happen amongst peers. It happened amongst journalists (laughs) and amongst publications in the age of clickbait. And that is something that I've noticed because I left academia and became a journalist just before the surge happened two years prior. And then on the other hand, you have the beatification of these subjects who are oh so brave and oh so good. And I'm thinking this is a bit simplistic and medicine should not be about any of these attributes that might belong in a confessional. And so I do look at this as an anthropologist, I see this and I'm thinking, wait a sec, let's just, you and I were both alive in the 1980s. And do you remember every single rock group? I mean, flock of seagulls, were they just unaware that they were really women? Like if we're going to go back to the codification of what makes one feminine or masculine, which is what gender before this meant, It didn't mean men or women. Gender meant feminine or masculine. Or take a look at even David Bowie in the 70s. Prince, men in rock since the 1960s for sure were able to access and get away with accessing femininity. We saw it in every way from Tiny Tim to Duran Duran. They were gay or they weren't. Little did it matter. I mean, I think one thing we really need is more representation of gender stereotype non-conforming people, you know? So one thing I've heard from detransitioners is um, there's very little representation of masculine or butch lesbians. And we need to really support that people can be gender non-conforming. And that is, that is great. And it doesn't mean that you're the opposite sex. So we really need that support for both males and females. And so like the males in the 1980s bands, that's great. So we, we do need some more representation of people who are gender, non, gender stereotype non-conforming. I like the term gender stereotype non-conforming better than gender non-conforming because what it really is, is that you're not conforming to the stereotypes. You know, let, let, let's kind of keep this specific. So, and it's okay for girls to like feminine things and boys to like masculine things, but we need to really sort of broaden what we support boys, girls, men, women, everybody to do. Like 
let's support people who decide they want to wear makeup or don't want to wear makeup, who want to wear dresses, who don't want to wear dresses, all of these things. Let's not medicalize that or pathologize gender stereotype nonconformity. You raise an interesting point here with what you said. It's about representation of gender. Now that representation, it goes as far back to Plato in the cave, but we're talking primarily about media. What people would, you know, people are watching Pretty Woman. They're seeing Julia Roberts, who does not look like any prostitute I've seen, but whatever. Okay. So we're supposed to run with that. <laughs> And of course, media is full of, you know, any Hitchcock film, it's going to have Tippi Hedren, it's going to have Grace Kelly. We're not going to see someone that looks like most of us on screen. So I'm just wondering to what degree gender dysphoria maybe could be managed in a way, like you talk about the representations and what that one desister had told you, but maybe there's a larger challenge here by medical associations, psychiatric and psychological associations saying, maybe we need to have a vast study of sociological influences into what we're doing, even outside of gender dysphoria. Because it seems to me that medicine might not be the best place to be treating what are personal journeys. We know, I'll give you an example. We know the brain is not fully developed until the mid-20s to some, in some studies, they say 29. I jumped out of an airplane when I was in the army. I was 18. I jumped out of an airplane, not once, not twice, many times because I was at Fort Benning, Georgia. If you ask me today, Lisa, to jump out of an airplane for fun, or you're like, it's my birthday, let's go jump out of an airplane, I would be like, uh, I don't think so. I did a lot of things when I was 16, 17, 25 that I would not do today. Was it because my brain was less developed? Perhaps. Was it because I didn't have children then? A lot of it, yeah. But I think we're giving away to self-perception. Like when people say, I feel really like I'm a woman. And I'm having discussions with a lot of people who identify as trans. And I challenge them to explain to me what that means. Because I am a woman. I've given birth to several children. But I still don't know what that means in the sense of, I say gender is what rears its ugly head when it comes at you. When someone says no, like once I was in Morocco and I was told by these two American guys that were studying with me, I had to sit on the inside of the taxi cab where there were three of us in the back because I was the woman. I kid you not. This was from the mouths of other Fulbrighters that we were in an Arabic course together. And I'm thinking, okay, they wouldn't have pulled this if we were back in the States, but whatever. So gender is what rears its ugly head when it is attached to the power that it imposes. I do not have a gender, never had a gender. I've always had to, like most every single woman on the planet and girl, fight against gender stereotypes. And the feminists might not agree with me on this, but I think every bit as much men have to fight gender stereotypes, even if they are framed very differently. So part of me thinks the reason why transgender identity surged initially with young men and boys, and then now has shifted towards young women, adolescent girls, is because of the fact that there's a lot of non-permissive behavior. My question then is, is there another model that might 
be outside of the medical model. I mean, you suggested also better representation, absolutely. But how can we make societal changes to accept butch women and effeminate men? Because we had no problems when it came to the flock of seagulls, haircuts, but we have problems when a boy wants to do something as simple as wear a dress. That becomes indicative of a problem rather than, oh, wear the dress, go ahead. I mean, these are, these are big questions. I don't know how to magically change society. And again, it's not going to be all people being willing to move in the same direction. You know, we are a very polarized society. We are often getting our information from very different sources and, and echo chambers. So trying to move forward and reducing the restrictive gender stereotypes, um, it's going to take really the motivation of a, of a lot of people. And I do hope that we can do, we can move forward in this, in this way and to learn from some of the openness that we've had previously in terms of different types of role models and different ways of being male and female and gender nonconformity. Could you tell me about the way that the evidence used to support the use of puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones for adults based upon low-quality research? So it's unfortunate that puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones are often portrayed as settled science. This is the best way to treat young people with gender dysphoria. The recommendations to support the use of puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones in teenagers is low quality and very low quality. So it's a bit of an overreach to call this intervention evidence-based, as is very common in the discourse around this issue. Another example of overreach is we don't know whether puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones for teenagers will ultimately increase, decrease, or fail to change suicide rates. So calling them life-saving is really problematic because we don't know. And I've heard situations where the use of the information around suicide has been weaponized against parents, where clinicians will pressure parents into going down a medical pathway with their child by misusing the research and saying that the child will be suicidal if you don't provide, you know, if you don't use puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones, and this will prevent your child. And that is, um, it's inappropriate and unethical. Well, we're seeing that if you've paid attention lately to the ACLU website, they're weaponizing suicide around the sports issue, which I found atrocious mm -hmm. because that will only get parents to be more worried and to question less. You're working on a few new projects, one about desistance and detransition. And well, I think two actually. Could you talk about those projects? Sure, I have, I have two projects about um, that are not published yet, but I'll tell you, I can tell you a little bit about them. So um, I did a study um, surveying detransitioners. And for the purpose of that study, detransition was defined as having taken cross-sex hormones or having had surgery to transition and then detransitioning by either stopping medications or having surgery to reverse the changes. 
And so for that study, I recruited through to a variety of communities with varied perspectives about transition and detransition and collected 100 surveys of detransitioners. And what I found was that there are a lot of reasons and experiences related to detransition. There is not just one story. And it's important not to assume that there is one story. A really interesting finding was that very few of the detransitioners had informed the clinicians that facilitated their transitions that they had detransitioned. So it just adds more support to the idea that the reports coming from gender clinics about detransitioners are going to be underestimates because there are so many reasons why someone who detransitions would not want to go back to a clinician that transitioned them. And that also skews the data because there's a lot of discussion around detransition because there's so many people detransitioning and we won't be able to get the data correct, right? Right. It's going to be really hard to get accurate numbers for a variety of reasons. One is that it's unlikely that a detransitioner will go back to the clinic. Another reason is the stigma. I mean, there is so much stigma around detransition. And if you think about vulnerability and marginalized communities and marginalized people, so detransitioners, they went through the process of identifying as transgender and transitioned. And then once they detransitioned, many of them were really dismissed from the transgender community. So they are doubly marginalized and there's a lot of stigma. And of course, there are people trying to say they don't exist or that their experiences don't matter. And so that's unacceptable that these are real people with real experiences. And it's important to understand. I as a physician and as a researcher, I am surprised that people wouldn't want to know the full array of outcomes from transition. And so this is important for informed decision-making. So understanding the experiences of detransitioners, it's important one, so that we have a way to help them because currently there are no guidelines and they're in order what we can do to to support their well-being, but also for anybody who is considering a gender transition, this is valuable information because how else can you be informed about the decision you're making if you only hear the most sunny outcomes? You really want to know the full array. I do want to say that, that again, with not painting uh, detransitioners with a broad brush, that not all detransitioners regret their transitions and not all people who regret transitions will detransition. So there's a lot of variety there. Going on to my other study. So I also conducted a study about desisters and detransitioners because my first study of detransition, I had a really wide age range from like 18 years of age to, I didn't put an upper limit on it. So there were some people in that study were, who were more than 60 years of age and a lot of differences between people who transition recently versus two or three decades ago. So in the most recent study, I looked at desisters and detransitioners. The focus was on whether they identified as transgender previously and no longer identified as transgender. And so that was an, that was an interesting, it was an interesting start to that study because I launched the study and it was originally going to be an anonymous online study. 
Uh, however, some individuals felt it was important to try to mess with the mess with the study. So on social media, and yes, I've got the screen the screenshots. There were people saying, "Hey, let's mis- mess with this study," and then people were bragging about how they took the stu- the survey and they weren't detransitioners and they weren't from the United States. And how am I going to find out anyway? So, um, so I had to do a second launch. I, I changed the methodology of the study so that before anyone had access to the survey questions, there was a video conference interview. And it turns out that now it's a much stronger and more, more robust study than it would have been as an anonymous online survey. And another positive that came from the attempts to sabotage the study is that I got to meet a lot of desisters and detransitioners. So that was really great. The control of information seems to be at the heart of this battle where science doesn't care about feelings or doesn't care about anything other than facts. And it's very interesting to me to observe how this has become more of a of a push for a certain type of opinion about trans identification to be unquestioned, where others who are more gender critical, including the feminists, but even those who are not feminists, saying, but wait, humans can't change sex. So why are we being told we're transphobic for saying that humans can't change sex? And many people, you will give examples about they're having a brother or a best friend who is transgender, but that person doesn't really think that they're the opposite sex. So it seems that there's been a shift in the way that people who today are called transgender regard themselves and their powers as opposed to 30 years ago and that group of people, a very tiny group of people who were then transsexual. And it's interesting for me, therefore, to see how this lobby wants to eviscerate the voices of the desisters and the detransitioners. They've been also threatened, also told that they're transphobic. And it's sort of doing more harm to the trans community in the end, because it's in their best interest to have the best science, isn't it? I believe so. I think the information is important. And I do find it very upsetting that these sisters and detransitioners are being silenced. And I I worry that this is actually going to backfire and, and cause harm to the transgender community and transgender people. Because I do think over time, there will be more and more voices of people who detransition, and there will be more recognition that Some people are helped by transition and some people are harmed. And the people who are harmed, there will be discussion about why there weren't more safeguards and why there wasn't more evaluation. And on the other side of this, I think looking back on behaviors that are shutting down research, shutting down messages that are not consistent with one approach will be held against not just individuals who were really saying and doing these things, but this could potentially be used against transgender people. And I think that would be a tragedy because 
there is a lot of variation in beliefs and, um, and positions for transgender people. And there have been, there's been progress in acceptance over the past decade or maybe two decades. Not that it's not that we're there by any means, but it would be really unfortunate if that backslid. Well, I'm more critical, I should say, about the way in which science is being used to treat personality. And not to say that people don't suffer, but I'll give you an example. When I lost my child, I was put on sick leave. Now I wanted to go back and teach that fall and my chair said, don't take the time off. But in order for me to be rubber stamped for the university where I was teaching, I was forced to see a psychiatrist. I went to see her. And the first thing I said, I was very polite, I thought, but I said, look, I do not want to be medicalized. I was already given these sleeping pills the other day, but I do not want to go on any kind of drugs because I've lost a child. I don't have a psychiatric situation here. I'm in mourning. And she said to me, I quote, that's for me to decide. And I remember, well, I was angry about this because I thought, I am here because I was forced to be here in order for my university to keep paying me. And they had the rubber stamping that I was under care. They wouldn't accept that from a psychologist. I had to, by force, go to a psychiatrist, okay? For losing a child, I can tell you that I took this very heavily because I thought, oh my gosh, I should have just gone back and taught. Like, who would have thought I would have been told that this doctor might have been able to force some kind of pathology on me. And I've done research on it since because mourning is not a psychiatric illness. Unfortunately, it's part of life. Now, I think of that very different paradigm, of course, but the power of psychiatry to create a term, to make a diagnostics over certain types of behavior that later on, decades later, are reevaluated such as my own condition called homosexuality. <laughs> and they say, oh, that wasn't a disease. It's just another expression. Is there a danger that we might have already paddled too quickly towards scientific repairs for issues that might be better handled through sociological and political and even communal repairs? Well, I mean, the first thing I want to say is I am so sorry to hear about the loss of your child. That, that's really so tragic, and I'm sorry. Pivoting to, is there a, a danger that we have gone too quickly towards a repair, and maybe it's better, more of a sociological issue? I, you know, I do think that the progress of medicine is not a straight line. There are some ups and downs and, and some moves in one direction. And then, as I mentioned with these other examples, we, we get a more comprehensive understanding of the situation and then need to pull back. And I think that in terms of going forward, I don't really know what's going to happen sociologically. I can tell you what I, what I hope will happen, but also medically speaking, I do think that there should be the next, I don't want to say trend, but maybe movement towards taking a whole person approach and not dismissing the attributes or possibilities that don't reinforce 
our favored approaches. I mean, we need to be putting the health and well-being of all people who experience gender dysphoria above whether we like one approach or the other. And we need to really look from that direction because some people are helped by transition, some people are harmed by transition. And we need to find out more about how this whole thing works and how we can maximize the benefit that people receive and minimize the harm. So I think there's there, there may be more shifts in medicine. Not everybody is practicing the same way. So there is some variation there, but there are movements in certain directions. And so I think not dismissing the psychosocial context, not dismissing developmental psychology, not dismissing the evidence about desistance, I think would be a good place and a good direction to move. Thank you.